smelt. <laughs> yeah, Connor was bad this week. We had to put him on the stage over there by himself. His punishment. Well, good morning, everybody. It's nice to be with y'all. Sunny morning. If you want to stand up, we'll, uh, Sing a song we did last night.
one. Uh, kids, if you're in here, you're dismissed to go uh, your groups. You meet your leaders in the back. And um, you guys can sing and praise one more. Mm-hmm. All right, before we go into it, Father, thank you for what you've given us to rejoice about today and the good news that we hear from the Gospel of Luke. It's Luke writing to someone. It's the Holy Spirit talking to us. May we be good recipients of your word today. May you help us to be that. We can't be that apart from you. And thank you that you grant us the grace of understanding. You grant us the grace of faith. And you grant us the grace of all graces, yourself. Help us to be good recipients of our Lord. It's for his wonderful name we pray. stand before your maker, full of wonder, full of fear. Oh, come behold his power and glory, yet with confidence drawn near. For the one who holds the heavens and commands the stars above is the God who bends to bless us with an unrelenting love. Come and lift your hands and raise your voice. He is worthy of all praise and rejoice. Sing the mercies of your King and with trembling rejoice. Our children of the promise, the beloved of the Lord, one with everlasting kindness, but with sacrificial blood, bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. your hands and raise your voice. He is worthy of all praise. Rejoice. Sing the mercies of your King and with trembling rejoice. All our sickness, all our sorrows, Jesus carried up the hill. He has walked this path before us. Yes, he is walking with us still. Turning tragedy to triumph and turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle. So take heart and stand amazed and rejoice. When you cry to him, he hears your voice. And he will wipe away your tears. Rejoice in the midst of suffering. He will help you sing. 
Very good, very good. Well, uh, as we gather today, uh, hopefully you guys are doing well, uh, staying cool. Um, you know, our complaints are, are usually, if it's not within that range of 70, 75, it's too hot, too cold, you know, we're always looking for that just right. And um, when we gather in a place like this, uh, we do try to at least make the temperature so that it is something that is not going to distract us. But I don't know. Sometimes I take a survey and I'm like, are you too hot or are you too cold? And I'll get, I'm too hot. Then another person will say, I'm too cold. And uh, we're probably never happy, I'm sure. But there's a lot of things that uh, we do count as blessings. And uh, we want to celebrate that alongside looking at the things that are weighing on our hearts that we can share uh, in the form of prayer for one another. And so I want to begin um, doing that, um, and then what I'll do after that and after our prayer time, I have a couple of announcements that I need to make, and then we'll get into our message. Uh, so uh, just to start it off, is there anything that you brought into this room that is weighing on your heart that we can be praying about? Because um, we certainly want to do that. Alice? Alice? It was a lot of fun, yeah. It was delicious, yeah. Yeah, definitely a lot to, lot to commend there for our helpers, uh, especially Josh doing the cooking. We've just been trying to initiate uh, gatherings for people to get back into fellowship as we've come out of the pandemic kind of bubbly. Um, and that was just one event that I think uh, we've been able to do that. Uh, but, um, you know, there's just a lot of little events that we're trying to plan uh, to engage uh, us as a church. Uh, just in fellowship and outreach, and uh, last night was definitely a blessing for sure. Um, any anything else, Alice? You had one you wanted to mention. Yeah, I wanted to thank everybody for the cards and the prayers. Get I'm I'm glad you're feeling better. Good. You look you look like you're feeling 100. percent That's great. Ready to dance. Well, we'll save that for a little bit later on in the service. Okay. <laughs> Kathy? Okay. Okay. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so pray for uh, Master pa Pastor Marvin um, and his family. 
um, it doesn't look very good for his health. So we pray for a miracle that something can happen dramatic. Okay. Um, Joe Carroll. Pardon? Ross? Okay. Ross's son passed away. Okay, all right. I'm just having a hard time. I don't know if it's an AC or what. Okay. Uh, anyone else? Diane? Yeah, that was a rough day for those guys yesterday. Um, but yeah, pray for Diane Rude, uh, whose 29-year-old grandson passed away um, just a while back. Uh, so uh, keep her lifted up. Any others? Okay. Anything? Derek? I think you got to remember the people in Afghanistan, the families that lost loved ones, soldiers, and uh, people all over having a hard time. People in Tennessee, 17 inches of rain, and yeah yeah it's a it's a very difficult moment in in the world and certainly in afghanistan as we've made kind of a a pretty epic move out of there from a long long time of being uh fighting about wars over there anyone else okay well i just want to keep uh, gail hill lifted up as she goes through her chemo so please just uh, remember her and um and let's just take this time and we'll We'll lift it up before the Lord and all these we've mentioned. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for the gift of prayer. It is a way of just activating all of that potential that you've set aside to resource us in the things that we do and the challenges that we face. Lord, we know that you are eager to hear us pray, to lift before your throne the lives of the people that uh, we um, are, are close to and st struggle alongside. We thank you, Father, that we have one who is our helper and that you are our great physician. Lord, as we uh, lift up these that we've mentioned, we, we do pray for Diane Rood and ask that your comfort would be with their family as they've had to um, um, just give to you, Lord, uh, someone that um, had a life that was cut short way too early. We pray, Father, as um, we celebrate events, we're grateful for our gathering yesterday. We're grateful for people experiencing health again after battles with sickness. We pray, Father, that you would um, be that source that we need. I pray for Pastor Marvin in all of his work that he's done for you uh, in the course of his calling. I, I just ask that you would now minister to him through your people as he has ministered to so many and just encourage his family. We pray, Lord, for a miracle that you would uh, just suspend those forces that are working against his health and that you would remake those things that are necessary and vital for his, uh, his survival. We pray, Father, that as um, we uh, lift up uh, the things that pastorally are on our hearts this morning, uh, we also remember Gail Hill and the struggle that she's having right now in battling cancer, we pray that you bless all of the chemotherapy that she's going through. Encourage her spirit. 
And in all of these struggles, Lord, I pray that there would be a deeper dependence uh, that would grow in her relationship with you. And just for all of us, as we go through those experiences, that our trust in you and that foundation that we've laid in you through Jesus uh, would become uh, more evident and more sure than ever. We thank you, Father, for um, this season where kids are going back to school and teachers are beginning to re-engage uh, with students. We just pray for a blessing to be upon this school year and all of the activities that are happening in uh, those environments that um, are across the street and around our community and surrounding uh, our city. We pray, Father, that you would bless each school, the administrators, the teachers, and all of the students, that they would know uh, that measure of grace that they need in this time of, of just recalibrating uh, what it means to go back to school. We pray, Father, for our country as we have um, disengaged from a very long war in Afghanistan. The, the reasons are beyond me, Father, in understanding the whys, but I just pray that in this moment of withdrawal that you would just help those who need sanctuary, that need to be returned to their homes and their families, that there would be peace that would prevail and that those possibilities could happen uh, where every life could uh, be restored back to places and spaces where they belong. Father, we ask that as um, we lift up uh, that whole circumstance that um, is really beyond our comprehension, that you be with our country as well, that you would, um, in, in the minds of our leaders, give them a sense of justice and rightness that is sourced in you, that you would uh, bring to the surface evil if it's manifesting anywhere in our country and let it be named and let it be called out and let it be dealt with in ways that um, restore civility and peace and uh, that sense of, 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 of order. We're grateful that, that you ordain governments and you ordain uh, all of these institutions that enable us to live in a civil way. Uh, but we pray as well for our church that as we seek to anchor ourselves in the reality of your kingdom and in the person of Jesus, I pray for everyone here who is seeking you that whatever it is that you want us to hear, that your voice would be heard today in the proclamation of your word. I pray for our people that a spirit of unity would prevail and that as we think about our role and our mission, Lord, I pray that that vision would become crystallized in our hearts and our minds regarding what we are called to do in this season and what opportunities you're creating. So give us that, that understanding, Lord, um, and help us where our hearts and our minds are, are be, being willful against your purpose. And I include myself in that, Father. I just ask, Lord, that in all of these things that your will would be done. And may we just begin that process as we pray together our Lord's Prayer. Would you pray with me now? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, um, just a 
Uh, just a couple of announcements real quick. Um, I know the Joy Club is going to suspend, or, or postpone rather, uh, their gathering until um, October 6th. So if you um, were planning to be there uh, on, on the previous date, uh, just bump it up on your calendar to that date right there. And then also uh, coming up, uh, we're, we're looking ahead to congregational meeting in December. And as we do that, um, we're looking for uh, candidates for elders. And if you know of anyone that you think would be a, a, good, a good fit for that role, uh, please uh, submit that to the office or one of the elders or myself, and we'll make sure that that's uh, included in the process. So that out of the way, um, if you have your Bibles with you, would you uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 10 uh, as we carry on through this story? Um, uh, one more very interesting um, uh, development that's beginning to happen in the unfolding of the ministry of Jesus that we're going to explore today. And it has to do with the name of that person that um, um, we don't like to say his name or its name or whatever you want to call that being that is at work against humanity. The Bible describes him in a variety of terms, but one of the terms that uh, sticks out a lot is that word uh, Satan or the Satan. And we're going to explore that uh, in a minute and the significance of that, not only for the telling of the gospel story in Luke, but for your life and for mine, because he is a force at work in the world against uh, the people of God and against humanity in general. And something happens here in the telling of the story that works against his purposes. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. So that's your teaser um, for leading into our text. Uh, so if you do have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, and we're going to pick up on verse 17 and go through verse 24. Uh, so here we go. The 72 or 70, as some versions have, it's not really clear if it's 70 or 72, but we'll go with it. Um, Returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that your spirits submit to you, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he returned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. All right, when I first read those words in preparation, I was thinking, holy cow, there is something of epic significance unfolding in this that Luke is describing regarding the mission and the purpose of Jesus 
and the effect that the 70 or 72 had when they went out and they proclaimed the good news in the towns that um, uh, they had traveled in leading up to uh, uh, his journey to Jerusalem. And they're kind of taking a long, circuitous route to Jerusalem, which is Jesus' destiny as the story unfolds. And there is a character that comes up repeatedly in the Gospels and oftentimes in the writings of Paul that we don't hear much about in the Old Testament. And it is, it is a person that we just know is working in the backgrounds behind the curtain of our lives and of politics and so many things. And yet we don't really fully understand who he is or why or what. There's a lot of questions that I think I know I'm going to have regarding this person and his and his uh, malevolent intent against the purposes of God and humanity. And in the story that you and I just looked at, there's something that the 70 or 72 did that, that um, seems to have had an impact on this being's station in the, in the universe. He has been somehow altered in his authority in a way that when Jesus was praying, it was like he had a vision of the things that the 72 were doing, and he had a vision of the things that were happening behind the curtain, you know, behind the curtain. How many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz? Okay, you know that there is the in front of the curtain, and all the goings-ons that happen in Oz and how everybody is just enamored by the fact that the, the wizard is the one who is making things possible. Until that meddling dog, Toto, goes behind the curtain and it becomes revealed that, oh, this isn't quite what I thought it was. And I think everybody loves that moment because there's just so much buildup regarding this character. And the Bible talks about things a lot regarding what's happening in front of the curtain. We read about um, the experience of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Pharaoh. And we read about King David and we read about so many biblical events that oftentimes we'll have just a little bit of a clue or a hint that there's another party at work behind the curtain. And he's not really mentioned very often. I mean, one time with King David, it said that Satan or the Satan or the, you know, the devil, the accuser, um, basically uh, fired him up to do a census. And we think, well, that's kind of strange. And then you read a story in the book of Job where Job has lost everything. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his health. He's lost his kids. And his friends are trying to console him. And meanwhile, behind the curtain in the book of Job, I think it's in around chapter 6 or so, there's a conversation happening between God and the grand accuser. The the accuser, that's, that's what Satan actually means in Hebrew, the accuser. 
And it seems like the accuser has been busy trying to find ways to explore the life and the psyche of Job so that he can say, yeah, Job, he's not so righteous after all. He's not so good after all. And the story of Job is a perplexing one to try to understand because not only do you have God who's totally righteous, and you have Job who's being told by his friends that you've screwed up somewhere and now God's mad. And then behind the curtain, you have this conversation between God and the Satan about Job. And you're thinking, all right, I'm only able to see things in front of the curtain. I can't see what's happening behind the curtain. The only way that I can understand that is for God to reveal it. And he certainly does in the book of Job. And then in the book of Zechariah, it talks about the Satan, the accuser, going down and, and tempting one of the kings. But apart from those three stories, there really isn't any mention of the Satan or the accuser in the Old Testament with that terminology. We read about the serpent in Genesis, and we read about a few other dark characters that are described as playing that role, but <clears throat> the mention of the Satan is pretty limited. And why he's a part of the whole equation is a, a really a basis for a lot of speculation throughout church history. And there are different positions that people arrive at, and one of them is that originally his job in that heavenly council was to look at people and to say, I want to accuse them of their shortcomings before the throne of God. Now, I don't know how many Catholic uh, background people we have in the gathering, but um, one word that the Catholics use a little differently than we use is the word saint. Okay, now in the Bible, saint is just the holy ones, those who are members of, of the family of God. We're all saints by that definition, according to Paul. But in Catholic tradition, it's kind of developed into an elite status of person who has dedicated their lives to the purpose of God. And there's some criteria that will determine that you have that kind of elite status. And by elite, I, I think it's serving elite. And the idea is that people from the time of the recognition of that special person who served the church and the purposes of God well, to throughout the history of the church, they'll look back and they'll say, well, there's you know, St. Peter, there's St. Christopher, there's St. Jude, and the list of saints just goes on and on. And did you know that in order to become a saint within the Catholic tradition, there's a rigorous process of investigating the person's life so that if future people look at the record of their life, they won't find any skeletons in their, in their closet. They won't find anything that says, yeah, everybody thought they were a good person, but in, in the end we discovered that they're kind of a scoundrel and they just managed to pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes. So in the process of becoming a saint, there is this group of people that are called to review all of the good works that the person has done. But then there's also a person whose sole job is to dig into the dirty laundry 
of the so-called scene. They do like an investigation. They do a background check that, that examines their life and their story and the people around them in great detail. And their job when it is time to nominate the saint is to become the accuser. And the accuser actually is known as the devil's advocate. You ever hear that word before? The devil's advocate's job is to say, I'm playing the devil in this equation. And my job is to say, you are not worthy of this role. That's my whole aim, is to be totally super, super critical. And in the Catholic Church, there are people who don't meet that scrutiny well enough to be nominated or to, to be, to be uh, verified as saints. The devil's advocate is by design not a bad thing. If, I'm not in agreement with the whole framework, but according to their way of thinking, it's a way of calling out a person for the things that they've done in the eyes of God that are not right and that are really detracting from the testimony that they have. Now, when we hear about the Satan in the Old Testament, a little bit of that's going on. And we see it with Job and we see it with kings and probably a little bit with David. But for the most part, we don't know what's going on behind the curtain. Until we read the book of Daniel, which is a book, when you open up your Bible, you'll find the Old Testament and the New Testament. And kind of near the end of the story of the Old Testament, Daniel shows up. And he has this grand vision that there are forces at work in the world that are unseen, but yet very, very powerful and very influential. And usually what they will do is they will empower kings. And in his case, he talked about the king of Persia having this great power, but it was, it was I don't know how to describe it best other than through car terminology. With a car, you just put gasoline in it and you know, it, goes, it can go fast if it's designed to go fast. But if you add nitrous oxide to the mix, it goes super duper fast. So anybody has a car and you're thinking, I want to make it faster, that's what you do. But I don't recommend that because I'm not trying to promote anything here. Other than to say, when these forces that are at work behind the curtain see a king or somebody that's making choices that are against God's purposes, they're like, we're on it. We want to empower that. And maybe you kind of felt that a little bit in your own experience when you've gotten angry about something. Have you ever had an anger that starts out, you've got a righteous reason to be angry, but then all of a sudden it's supercharged into just like this explosive power. It's almost intoxicating. Well, that's the powers at work just saying we're going to add a little nitrous oxide to that. We're going to make that really blow up. And a lot of people in government, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because I don't really know, but a lot of people in government will make choices, and sometimes they'll make choices that are against God's purposes. And according to Scripture, we find that there are forces, demonic forces at work that say, we want to supercharge that, we want to empower that. 
All right, are you guys with me so far? I hope. So if, if not, just please bear with me. Because in the Old Testament tradition, as the story kind of unfolded to near the end of the Old Testament, it seemed like the people of God started to wake up to the fact that there's more than just ourselves and God in the equation. In the Old Testament, initially, when God settled the people into the promised land, he gave them a set of promises and a set of curses. And he said, if you honor me and you follow my will, it will go well with you and you will be blessed. But if you don't follow my will and you break the covenant that we've created on Mount Sinai, it will not go well with you and your lives will fall apart and chaos will ensue. So choose which direction you want to go. And over the course of time, they chose to break the covenant and God gave them over to four nations. And they always felt like if we just get our lives right with God, he'll restore the blessing. That was the promise. And God did that a number of times, but by the time Daniel rolls around, the kingdom has collapsed. The temple is on the verge of destruction. And things are really falling apart. And the people are feeling bad because they know they broke the covenant with God and they're feeling the curse. And then there's Ezra and Nehemiah and there's reform and there's people getting right with the Lord. But something's going on that doesn't make any sense. We were trying to honor you, God, and you were promising to restore us. And in many ways, you did, but there's still the issue that we have not been restored to the promised land in a way that we have a king again and things are back in order the way you've designed it. And people started to really wrestle with that question. How is it that when we are trying to get right with God via Ezra, Nehemiah, and the reforms, and we're just really cleaning house, and yet we have the Medes on our on our back, we have the Persians putting the boot on our neck. We have the Greeks taking over from there. And then we have a few others, and finally the Romans. And this whole time, God, it seems that no matter how hard we try, we can never get in a place where what we were promised a long time ago, that blessed relationship with you and harmony with each other and peace with the land is restored. And so during the intertestamental time, after Daniel and Ezekiel, who talks about behind the curtain, there are a lot of people writing about this stuff. And a lot of those books are not included in the Bible, but they're talking about it because it's becoming very clear that the players aren't just ourselves, and God. But there's another force at work that is disrupting the whole process in ways that make it very hard for our lives to be restored again. 
The New Testament talks about the powers and the principalities that are in play. And Paul writes about this later on in the book of Colossians. I'll just put a couple of scriptures for reference. It says, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, and he's talking about both um, uh, the demonic and the authority of Christ himself. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Paul just says, basically, that whole behind-the-curtain experience that's been so hard for us to wrap our minds around was sorted out on the cross. And Paul writes in Ephesians these words as well. His intent was that now through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom of God, that is the revelation of the things of Jesus, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, that Jesus Christ is Lord, King of kings, over both the seen and the unseen. And then finally, Paul writes this. For our struggle, and that's you and I, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You can't really put it any more blunt than that. But it's that third party that's been so hard for us to wrap our mind around. Because if you were to go to the university and say, hey, do you know about Satan? They would say, yeah, that's a myth from a long time ago. Not a character really worth taking seriously. I mean, he's basically been edited out of the modern way of life. We don't really have a category for him. But the scripture is very clear that he's a very powerful player in the process of God recovering that which has been stolen from him in the garden. You remember as we were going through the beginning of the book of Luke, Jesus had been led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tested. And as he's tested, he's actually being tempted, the scripture says, by the devil. And I'll just quote a couple of things to jog your memory. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all of their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. That's just a couple of little sound bites from that story. But it really raises a lot of questions. How did he get that authority to begin with? Did God say, hey, Satan, you're in charge? Or did he steal it? And I honestly believe that he stole it in the garden where Adam and Eve consented to him to follow him. And then he said, okay, I'll take it from here. And he's been at work behind the scene trying to keep control of it. And God's been at work in the front of the curtain saying, I'm going to take it back. And it's going to be a long process of getting it right. But when the time is right, it will be right. Starting with Abraham and ending with Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene and Satan says, I give it to you. It's all yours. Just worship me. I'm in control here anyway. And Jesus is like, there's a new sheriff in town. And I just want to serve notice that the rules 
are starting to change. And what you've been given is going to be taken away from you. Matter of fact, you're actually going to give it back to me, believe it or not, when this is all done. We go to our story here where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. What he started in the desert, he's going to end on the cross. And on the way to Jerusalem, as he's healing people through the 70, and as they are finding refreshing words of good news through the proclamation of the gospel, as they are discovering reconciliation with God, it becomes clear that Jesus is doing something new and different that's changing lives profoundly. And even Satan himself is being affected by the proclamation of the good news. As he sends them out, he's praying, and he sees something that's really kind of hard to explain because it's sort of like in the realm beyond space and time, eternity. He sees Satan falling like lightning, meaning that in some way he's being, his, his authority is being taken away from him. He's being demoted. The only reason I go into all of that detail is because I think he's so often misunderstood as either being someone to just ignore or someone to be so afraid of that I'm constantly wondering what the devil's going to do next and putting us in a state of paranoia. I don't think you should be in either one of those places. But I do know this. He shows up. I also know that he hates us as the church. And I also know that he wants to destroy churches in general. Because as Paul wrote, churches are the vessel by which the dethroning good news is transmitted through people and place and time into all of those places around the world where the good news is proclaimed, into all of those places where the Bible is being translated into other language and the good news is being spoken. And you know what the good news is? Jesus is Lord and no one else is Lord over him. The good news is Jesus died so that the captivity that we have from the one who has taken control can lead to an experience of release for the captives. The good news is that my soul and your soul that is so blotted with its own sinfulness and willfulness and stains that can't be taken away have been removed by a bloodstained cross. The good news is that by that cross, a transfer has begun to take place. And in some ways, you could say an evacuation from the dominion of darkness that we live in apart from Jesus. Because no one can understand or relate to the Father except for Jesus, and nobody can really understand Jesus unless he reveals who he is to us. We just read that. And when we come to that knowledge of who he is, we discover something. 
that he has come to this earth and become one of us so that he can rescue us from that evil that's at work behind the curtain and that evil that's at work inside of us. And he can remake us into something new that an empty tomb broadcasts loudly eventually. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I want to keep us in this place where we're trying to figure out who he is and what the difference is. And one of the reasons why the, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of good people in this world who do a lot of great things. But this is more than about doing good works. This is about a legal thing that has to be settled. Because when the first people in the garden said, or were told by God, it's all yours. And when they consented to invite evil into the equation through rebellion and through following another being other than God, they legally forfeited their right to be the ones who are in dominion over this planet. We've lost that birthright legally. And the only way that it can be restored is for a new human being to come who is perfect on this planet to do what he did as a human being in the strength of a human being as he leaned on the power of God, a human being that is from the womb of a virgin but yet is conceived by God himself through the Holy Spirit, a new kind of human being. And the way that we participate in that new human being's birthright is by faith, by trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But that requires us to surrender our lives to him. We have to surrender it. And that's why we, we go through the ritual of baptism. It's a way of saying, I'm dying to myself, and I'm giving Jesus the right. I'm consenting to him the rights of, and privileges of my life so that I can be transferred into his kingdom, and Satan will no longer own me. Now, there's a whole lot of theology in all of that stuff, but I hope you guys get it, because that's the, that's the narrative above every other narrative. And Jesus sends out the 70, and he's praying, and God opens up behind the curtain, and Satan starts to fall because, well, he can't fight that. He can't fight Jesus and win. And what does it say Jesus did? He's rejoicing in the Spirit because this long-awaited drama is reaching its, its conclusion on the cross. And he said, kings and prophets were waiting to see this day. And there are people who are religious, who are so smart, and they're religious, and they've got it all figured out in their religion. They don't even see it because they don't have eyes like children. They've come to the place where they're like, nah, we're not interested in the devil thing. Or we don't have to talk about that. Or let's just focus on something else religiously. 
Jesus said, we can't. It is part of the whole process. We have to deal with a couple of things here. One of them is you and where you are at with him. And some people will say, I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. And I kind of want to do it my way anyway. And the Bible says if that's the way you are, believe it or not, you're with him. And other people, like myself, said at one point, I can't do it on my own. I make a mess of things. I don't really have a good compass in my head or a good GPS to make the right choices at the right time under every circumstance. I need Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior and my Redeemer and my Healer and everything that I lack I need him for, and I will be the first to admit to you and anyone else, I need him. I need him. Every second of every day, I need him. And the minute that I say I don't need him, it's kind of like I'm starting to sort of play on the border a little bit. I can even kind of invite the devil's influence as a believer into my life if I start deviating from my intentions towards his. He'll feed that. But repentance is a way of saying, I'm choosing the way of Jesus. And then your life and mine while we're here on planet Earth is just waking up every day and God saying, hey, Leonard, Hey, Rich. Hey, Derek. We're going to work on this thing for a while. You got this thing that's kind of messing up everything. We're going to work on that for a while. And then God, he kind of gets us where we get a new mind about it. And he says, okay, we're going to work on this for a while. And I so want to be a part of that. I want to be an enabler of that. I want to participate in that. I want to see redemption happen. I want to see lives restored. I want to stop going to funerals of 29-year-olds or 27-year-olds. I want to see the world put right the way God designed it. And there is only one way, and it is Jesus. There is no other way. As much as I'd like to tell people, you can follow other gods and we'll all land at the same destination, I do not believe that. I've explored that. I've questioned that. I've wondered about it. I've even dabbled in it, but I've concluded, no. There is only one authority that can defeat the power at work in me and the power at work behind the curtain. And that is Jesus. And what he does when we consent to accepting him as our Lord and Savior is he transfers us out of that domain of darkness and he calls us into the domain of his kingdom where we live in his love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. 
can only do that under the influence of God. I can't do it on my own. I tried. I'm not very good at it. But with him, it's amazing. The difference he makes for your soul, for your family, for your attitude towards the people around you, your children, your coworkers, people that you have to rub shoulders with at church, people you like, people you don't like. Jesus changes everything. And the devil can't feel it because in him we're kind of untouchable. But we have to daily make the choice. Are we going to keep our eyes on him? Or are we going to be like some people that say, don't really need him anymore. I'm saved, it doesn't matter, I'll just move on. Perhaps. But it's not really even about that. It is about restoring our birthright in Christ. It's about restoring all of creation that is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Paul says, awaiting the sons of men to come around to an understanding that God is Lord and everything begins to be restored. Wow. So there you go. That is what's going on in the background that Jesus is dealing with. There's the one-on-one ministry that he performs for people like you and I that have been broken by the gears of life and the forces that we can see and those we can't, that he touches and he ministers to us in ways that restore us. But then there's the larger conflict that he's also taking on in the form of one of us. And he's not doing it in his own strength. He's doing it in the strength of the Father. And he sends out the 72, and they're doing it in the strength of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And there's some prior who went out, tried it, didn't work, and he rebuked them saying, try to do it in your own strength. You can't do it without me being in the center of it. And so here's two takeaways I want to offer just as as I end. Um, And that's this. Uh, One is... um, It's the one that says deliver. How does God work? First of all, the work should not be undertaken by lone rangers. We're not called to do what we do by ourselves. Because we do life together, we share with each other, we are accountable to each other, and we protect each other by making sure that we stay aligned with God's word. We can't do this alone. We need each other. We've gone through a pandemic of isolation. We know how hard that is on our psyche, let alone our souls. And just the second takeaway, if you're on this journey in earnest, is the mission must be built through dependence on God. Everything that Jesus did started with prayer. Everything that the followers did started with prayer. And when the process of God moving through that prayer in those circumstances was over, there was rejoicing that God worked. It's so good to pray for people pastorally, but it's also good to rejoice on the other side of those prayers when we see God working. And our prayer every Sunday before we gather in this room is that each of you 
will know Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, as your Lord and Savior. And that you'll walk out of here not only knowing him, but hopefully being a part of the family that he's created called the church. And I don't know where you are at in that process, but it involves an act of surrender, saying, Lord, I trust you with my life. I turn away from the things in my life that are against your will and purpose, and I surrender my life to you to do your will and your will alone. And if you've moved beyond that, then the way you lock it down in earnest is you identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism and are incorporated into a body called the church whose sole responsibility is to proclaim the good news to a broken, hurting, confused, chaotic, and captive world. It doesn't have to be that way. God has a greater vision for you and I. Some of us may be like that circus elephant that the guy, guy had that, see, I've chained him up for so long, I just cut the chain. He doesn't go anywhere because he doesn't believe he can go anywhere. And Jesus says, you can. So I will end this with prayer, and then we'll go on into the time around the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, I just hope that what I've shared has been in alignment with your will and your purpose as we've read this text today. But not only that, for First Christian, as we move out of a pandemic through some difficult things that, that are not easy, but we're trusting, Father, into a vision for the road ahead. I pray, Father, for each of us here that we would have a spirit of surrender towards you and you alone. That it wouldn't be my will, but your will that would be done. That we would be able to share this together. We could be accountable together. And we could align our hearts and our minds together through your word. Bless us as a church as we seek to embody those things that we see pictured in scripture. Protect us from the evil one. Help us to declare every day that our lives, our church, our holy ground for you to inhabit, you alone. And then as we establish that, Father, may the war that we fight be fought in love that disarms the powers and the principalities. And help us to grow in that capacity to love like your son is loved. So I just surrender this to you, Lord, and pray that however you can use it, may your will and your purposes be done. May your name be magnified in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure that most of you are aware or have read before about... Uh, how we're instructed to partake of communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let, let a man examine himself that he might partake of these emblems in a worthy manner. It's a lot of times we don't do that. So uh, 
I encourage each of you to read that this week, and uh, I'll leave it to you to understand the consequences of not partaking in the, the way we're supposed to. So uh, let's, uh, let's just go to the Lord now as we approach his table, if you'll pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to this table today, we just want to reflect inward each in our own way and uh, give you thanks for going to the cross and enduring the, the most horrible uh, crucifixion, the most terrible uh, suffering that a man can endure on a cross. We thank you, God, that you did that for us on our behalf. And Lord, we just pray that uh, each of us can reflect in our own way, can ask forgiveness for our sins. So many times it's easier, I believe, to point to the evil in the world instead of reflecting inward and seeing what our personal sin and how it, how it adds to it. So, Lord, as we take this loaf and this cup, emblems of your body and blood shed on our behalf, we just pray, Lord, that... Uh, we would, we would truly ask forgiveness each in our own way. Sometimes I, I really believe that we can uh, act like we know God by the act of this, by having faith in this plastic cup. We need to go to you to realize your saving grace through your shed blood on that cross. So Lord, as we go into this week, we just ask your Holy Spirit be with us that we can reach out to others and that others might come to know you through your word and through our actions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. when you're ready. If you're praying, please continue. First words of this song is, I approach the throne of glory, nothing in my hands I bring. Uh, Psalm 51 says, a broken and contrite spirit the Lord will not reject. If you come with nothing and only Christ, you have everything you need.
saved us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. All the, all the wondering that we do and all the trying that we do by your grace that catches our attention and puts us in Christ. You stop our trying and all our efforts and direct our eyes onto the person and works, the finished person and works of Christ Jesus. Thank you for, that you are able to adjust the dials on our souls, on our hearts and our thinking and our mind and our strength, and you're able to give grace in all of these. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for regeneration. May you help our thankfulness by inviting us into all that you have for us in Christ that we might glorify you rightly. And it's for your wonderful and perfect and whole and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll see you soon. If you'd like to stay after, there's some classes that happen um, around here. There's digging deeper that takes place in here directly after the service. And there's a class downstairs. What's the room number? I for, I'm sorry, I forget the room number. Uh, it, right down the bottom of these stairs to our, um, to our exit on the side. So we'll see you soon. All right. The bottom of the stairs is the room number. All right, we'll see you.